Welcome to FinTech Fridays. Oh yeah! It's a weekly podcast brought to you by the National Crowdfunding and FinTech Association of Canada and Partners. Covering all things FinTech, blockchain, P2P, AI, and alternative finance. Hello everyone and welcome to FinTech Fridays podcast brought to you by the NCFA Canada, a leading FinTech and crowdfunding association. This is Anna Nimira, and I am your today's podcast host. Our podcast introduces remarkable people from the fintech community and um, showcases industry trends and developments. You can always refer to the past episodes by visiting our website to connect with our incredible guests and of course, their stories. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's podcast. We are thrilled to welcome our guests, Brock Murray, who is a co-founder and head of global development, and Karan Kiani, VP Solution in Engineering of Catapult, which is a multi-award innovative company with a financial post calling it Canada's best kept fintech secret. Gentlemen, great to have you here. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks great for to be here. Yes, fantastic. Um, can you tell us, um, in a nutshell, what Catapult's core business is, the essence of the company? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Catapult's uh, we're a software, software as a service business, um, and we provide a, a white label solution, a cloud infrastructure solution to alternative investment firms, and really our, our products helping with the exchange of, of kind of private capital and debt investments. And it manages the entire online investment workflow from investor onboarding all the way through to investor servicing. So you are focused on transforming and, and, and uh, empowering firms in global capital markets. Yeah, exactly. We're, we, we're playing a very key role in the digital transformation strategies, um, you know, helping groups bring more manual um, kind of ad hoc workflows online and particularly in the private capital markets. So um, Catapult was introduced to the market in um, 2015 with a global scale and expansion, which was happening in 2016. Then you guys had a listing on TSX Venture in 2017 with many strategic strategic partnerships since. So that is an incredible speed, like truly catapulting, scaling fast. What's the recipe for your success? Uh, you know, I, I think we have a, a ways to go before we can truly say it's a success. But, um, you know, I think we've done things quite unconventionally for a company of our size. Um, you know, early days, we, we went international, you know, at the very beginning of our, of our company's life cycle. Our, our first five clients were all from five different countries um, doing, uh, you know, alternative investment style businesses, whether it was commercial real estate or private lending. But they were in, right, four, four different regulatory jurisdictions. Um, uh, and, and that was something that we had to accommodate our product to. So, you know, day one, we ended up with a highly flexible, configurable system. And that actually kind of gave us, um, you know, it paved the way 
for a lot of the, the kind of customers we would bring on over time, right? Where we could meet their needs more easily than I think a lot of um, software products that are very static in nature. So, you know, that was one area. Um, we also went and did a public listing early in our company's life cycle, which I think is also quite unconventional. And that allowed us to, you know, to build our profile, um, attract some pretty interesting and, and uh, very accomplished investors. And, you know, put ourselves out in the marketplace where we were interacting with our customers and, uh, you know, and investors at the same time. So um, your listing on TSX Venture, was it direct or was it um, IPO? So we did what they call a non-offering uh, prospectus, meaning we had actually raised the capital prior to going public, but we did okay. go through the full prospectus process. So you know, a lot of firms you'll hear about RTOs, right? A, a reverse takeover where, you know, essentially kind of buying a shell and then taking that through, a, you know, kind of shortcutting the listing process. You know, Catapult did it in a way where there actually is a prospectus and, and went through the full kind of TSX approval process for our firm specifically. So, um, yeah, that's what we did in, in 2017. That's fantastic. So what was actually the most difficult to achieve during, during the time, during this five years since 2015? I think standardizing uh, our product and workflows has, has been the most challenging. Um, I think with a, cust you know, a, a product and a company of our size, there's a lot of unique uh, requirements that clients will come in with. And, and as your clients get bigger or as they use your product more extensively, there's a lot of new requests that also come up. So, there's a need for always iterating the product, improving the product, uh, technology trends keep changing, you know, new competitors arise. So there's a lot of product iteration and you need to have a team that can, can scale the product technically, but also the processes around serving new customers needs to be scalable as well. And that's everything from, you know, live support, uh, customer success, you know, having a sales team that can do repeatable sales and, and well-informed on what the product is and, and how it's evolving. So I would say uh, scalability has, has definitely been one. And maybe Karan has a, another, another area he wants yeah. to touch on. Yeah. 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 Like, so th this is an interesting question, right? Because the way I see it, and this, this will tell you a bit about the industry, private placement software would, I would say, loosely fit into within this, uh, the sphere of fintech, if you were to divide up the pie, you would have the sort of like investment management software. So we would fit into that category or subcategory of, of fintech. The, that space in and of itself, um, an important thing to know about us is in, in, in a direct sense, we're not going after a retail market, right? We're going after the enterprise market and the mid market. Okay. So the, the question then becomes, the people that, the, so the use cases that we're solving for, um, do the people out there that ha have to deal with the manual processes, do they even know that software like ours exists? So if you ask me, the, the biggest challenge that we have as a company is, you know, is competing with sort of the do nothing approach or stay with your existing process, which is largely dependent on paper-based processes, Microsoft Excel, and so on and so forth. Now, what ends up happening is you find certain prospects out there and the, your message resonates with them. And 
when you when when that happens, you go down a certain path with your product, right? Because you you want to you want to focus on that use case. You want to you want to get it right. But you know you, you'll have a different p- part of your sort of your prospect base that would say, hey, I want to pull your product this direction. So if you ask me about sort of our two biggest challenges, one is sort of product focus. Like there's so many use cases we can we can solve for. Like what are the top use cases we're really trying to get 100% right? And the second is the education of the market. In the enterprise, most uh, investment banks or groups that we would set into, they don't even know that we exist. So there's an educational exercise that has to take place before they they can go online and say, hey, I'm looking for private placement software. Now, if if they are already at that point, our our sales process is much easier because then we know our competitor from a competitive standpoint, our product is the leading product, right? So these are some ideas around some of our key challenges. They've been some of our challenges up to this point, but to Brock's point. Um, for a company of our size, it's quite impressive how how global our client base is. So we've had we've had a lot of clients, you know, uh, with the same use cases across across the world. Uh, but going forward, as we sort of focus in or zero in on c- certain areas of the of the market, there's a lot of education that has to happen. Now, with that said, I would say that COVID has um, really helped us, and I'll g- I can give you an example of that. So. Um, one of the slices of, or one of the use cases we solve for within our product is e-signatures or, or document management. So most people are familiar with DocuSign now, especially coming out of COVID and having to say, yep, we can't be dealing with paper. Let's sign up for a DocuSign account. Let's start getting e-signatures. We have our own proprietary signature technology. Um, and within our product, it's now it's easier for people to come in and say, oh yeah, now I can see the you know, I, I, I need something like this. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not something I can afford to wait on much longer, you know, if, if, already I have, if I haven't already signed up for something like it. So, yeah, um, I think that those are sort of, sort of some of the key things that we talk about a lot internally. Yes. So is that e-signature something what you are mostly proud of to develop from that period of time, or is it something else? Um, I, I mean, I'm sure Brock has some thoughts on this, but from my perspective, we, we've really taken sort of that concept of e-signature and made it um, focused and specialized to this market. So we have a, I would say our product is be- better than a generic solution that, that you would get off the shelf because we're really focused on investment management and the workflow. So we tie the workflow piece into it as well. As far as like, what are we most proud of? I would say... Um, uh, there's there's quite qu- quite a lot of other things that would probably be higher up on the list than e-signature, just in terms of um, the sophistication, right? So the platform is highly configurable. The 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 depth of the configurability and the number of ways in which you can mold the platform to do certain things, it's quite impressive. Yes. So yeah. um, Brock, I think you were Brock. I think you had some thoughts on that. Brock, yeah, do you no, want to yeah. add something to it? Yeah. Just just kind of in the same thinking is, is, you know, one of the areas I, I'm pretty happy with uh, is our investor experience that we're able to provide. So, you know, to Karan's point, there's, there's, a, there's a complex workflow when doing a private deal, when, when investors are starting to initiate their interest, go through the transaction, electronic signature is part of that. 
but it is, you know, a, a sequenced workflow that we highly automate. So, you know, I think um, there are a number of pieces and, and a number of, I guess, areas that we would elaborate on with that. But yeah, o- overall, the, the workflow automation and investor experience are areas that I think we're, we're definitely head and shoulders above what else is out there in the market. Yes. So um, Catapult powers firms in over 20 regulatory environments worldwide. And I'm, and I'm not mistaken. It's a 20 regulatory environments worldwide. That's very challenging considering that different um, jurisdictions have different regulatory requirements. How have you met the challenge of unifying the variety of procedures and administrative requirements in so many jurisdictions? It really goes back to our origins. You know, we had to do it day one as a company. Uh, service five different customers in five different regulatory environments. So that gave us five already. And ultimately it built all the uh, infrastructure that we needed to take that forward and add, you know, additional uh, regulatory uh, requirements and flexibility, but also even just business process and localization requirements. So there is, you know, what Karan said earlier, right? There's commonality between these clients, you know, they're worldwide, but there's commonality. Um, a lot of these industries, whether it's commercial real estate investment, you know, the equity capital markets types of divisions, they do operate, you know, from a business perspective in very similar ways. And there are nuance to the regulation. So for us, it's, it's, it's a combination of just having the right configurability and, and also uh, the right workflow uh, changes kind of possible. So, you know, that's how we've done it. And uh, it has been a challenge, but you know, it was a, it was kind of a challenge that we faced very early and, and we were able to get past early in our life cycle. So we could use it as a, an unfair advantage, right. As, as we matured as a business. Right. So, and, and, the- and, and just to uh, maybe just to build on that, uh, I'll give you sort of one concrete example that I think is, is, is really cool is when we talk about regulatory environments, mm-hmm. um, they, they have different sort of, um, so to, to, to get very specific with an example is if you're an investor in a certain country and you're investing in a certain type of asset or certain type of security, let's say crowdfunding, there's certain, uh, their issuer has certain requirements for what they need to collect from you. Now, the, fundamentally, what, what are we doing is we're helping build a workflow uh, around automating that data collection and automating investor verification and identity verification and so on and so forth. So that's the fu- fundamental requirement. We built our platform so that if you have to ask the investor five questions or 15 questions or a hundred questions, and you need to inject workflow into that process, it can be done purely through configuration. So that's, that's how we thought about our product is we know that re- from a regulation standpoint, things are changing every day, even within the States, like the 50 different States, they have different requirements. So to, to have anything that's, you know, built for a point in time is just not going to work. Right. So is that something, um, it, it's true, like when it comes to regulatory things, like there are certain things which are absolutely universal, like KYC, AML, and providing certain, exactly. Exactly. Providing certain documentation. But is there... But at the same time, from what you're saying, there are certain similarities as well. Is there one particular key difference when it comes to those regulatory requirements? 
Um, yeah, it, 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 I, I, I'll take a stab at it, and then Brock, you can you can chime in as well. For, for me, it comes down to going to the root of the question is who is allowed to participate in, in, in a certain type of offering. So through our platform, an issuer can come on and say, hey, we want to list something here and we want to solicit or maybe just invite investors to participate in something. So how open is that? Uh, and and uh, to what extent, uh, to what thresholds are you able to add investors uh, into that so that they can participate in it? Or is it just, is the door completely, is, is it completely open for anyone to come in and participate? So for instance, we talk about you know, uh, under the Jobs Act in the U.S., like the, the distinction between Reg D and Reg S, right? So uh, Reg S is giving you some of the same sort of exemptions for international investors. So having that, uh, being able to slice it off right at the very beginning and say, these offerings belong to these types of, these cohorts of investors and being able to really uh, segment, we call it segmentation, being able to segment that right off the bat. Right, so it, it, it comes to investors' um, investment criterias, pretty much. Who can do what? Exactly. Okay. Who, who is, exactly. What does the regulations allow for? And then you can weave into that interest as well. So the, regula the regulatory circumstances allow me to participate in something, but is this an offering I'm interested in? No. So if, if both of those don't hold true, uh, it won't be it won't be something that is going to be relevant to me, so. Right, so um, in general, when it comes to handling retail industry, that's rather a very difficult thing. So um, how do you follow and meet retail investors' trends? Because those ones are changing very rapidly. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there, there's, there's a, a number of aspects that we consider and there's a number of ways, I guess, people define retail in the U S you know, retail is often defined as, as any independent kind of individual investor. And that might be bucketed into accredited investors, which are high worth uh, investors that meet criteria um, in the public markets. Oftentimes retail is, is similar, right? It's any kind of individual that's, you know, that might be trading stocks, uh, kind of independent of any right institutional involvement and things like that uh, in the private markets. You know, when people talk retail, it usually is just individual investors across a range of, of income levels, right. Or, or wealth statuses. Um, so, you know, in the U S there, there's been a definition for a long time of what it, say an accredited investor is. Um, and that has really been the dominant force in private deals, right there. You know, they're less accessible than public markets are. Um, you know, in, in many cases, they are, have been done offline, right? It's very much who you know and who you have access to. So the, the definition uh, held and kind of included a certain pool of investors for a long period of time, you know, but the regulations will notify when they make changes to that. And in the U.S. recently, the, the SEC broadened that definition, which brought in a, a much bigger pool of what would be determined as, a, as an accredited investor. And groups that are, are marketing deals in, in the private space, accredited investors uh, really are the, the main target. Uh, yeah, right? it's kind of a cost of investor acquisition, right? You know, it takes the same amount of work to get an investor who has a thousand dollars to invest as it does to find one who has a million dollars to invest, right? So, you know, that's kind of the pool that most firms are really chasing after. 
will they take, you know, investors who might be at, at a lower kind of income tier, of course. And, you know, again, to, to what Quran said, if the regulations allow them to, of course they will. But that's kind of how we stay on top of what those trends are. And you see a lot of it through the client base as well, right? You see where clients are looking, you see what they're focusing on. Uh, you have some of the kind of the industry drivers like BlackRock, who, you know, they made a pretty big declaration saying that their investor uh, kind of portfolio and the source of their capital was going to go from about 85% institutional to 50% institutional, right? And the, the retail investor base was going to go from 15 to, to 50, right? So, you know, that was a, that was a pretty big wake up call to the industry that, you know, as private deals continue to move online, right, as the, as the industry kind of digitizes and, and the accessibility becomes uh, a lot more open for the average investor, you're going to see a lot more firms and, and, and even very large firms looking to tap into that, to that pool, right, and that, and that kind of power of capital, so... Yes. So this is what I actually also wanted to ask you about because investment industry in general um, has been rather conservative um, with its um, demanding requirements. Um, yet um, a lot of is changing right now and it's changing quite rapidly. What are the key changing factors in the digital transformation, particularly in your industry, in the um, alternative investment industry. You mentioned already a few, but maybe there are some other key ones which you can see where we're going from from now. Yeah, um, you know, I think I, I think the the efficiency um, that investors can go through verification processes has has been a focus you know, for the last kind of 12 to 18 months, right? And that will be a big theme, you know, even in the next two to three years, there's still a lot of groups who are not uh, doing that efficiently. They're not doing it digitally. Um, and and it, it's, it's the basis of every single one of these firms, right? Investors are kind of the gold, right? Of, of, the, of the industry. They all need to figure out ways to bring on investors quickly um, and more efficiently, right? In a, in a, right? In a, in a digital format. The other kind of, and that, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I was going to say, Brock, like just to build on that as well, when we talk about the investor experience, um, one of the first things that always comes up in conversation is, so we're talking to a group that is, is going to be white labeling uh, the Catapult product and the investor experience is really top of mind. So when you think of retail and, you know, we're recording this on a, on a day where, everything related to the markets is, is, is making the news, whether it's sort of Robin Hood and, and GameStop and whatnot, investors now have a certain expectation um, of what that, how seamless that experience needs to be, how quickly they can access a platform and in three clicks, be able to go from intent to decision and investment. Um, just to give you an example, uh, there is always this, um, uh, trend of where retail goes, B2B, where B2C goes, B2B eventually follows, right? So uh, the closest example I can think of is um, individuals, uh, you and I as consumers, we gave up using checks a lot, a lot before businesses gave up using checks. So business tends to follow and 
the experience aspect of it that Brock mentioned is really going to be uh, what drives and pushes these business to make these digital transformation decisions. So investors that don't, do not get an app or do not get a digital experience through which they can interact with you will essentially not use your firm or not use your services. That, that's the point that we're getting to. And um, yes, this is actually, you see like the five, like five years ago, when you guys were starting, um, FinTech had its um, big breakthrough, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. now, five years later, the number of FinTech companies is on the rise, just because, as you said, there is this demand. There is like, um, the demand comes from the bottom up. And so how do you actually deal with this increased competitive pressure in the industry because when you were starting five years ago you might be the only one or you might have just a few competitors right now when we are in right now on the edge of 2021 there's many more fintech firms which might be very similar to you so how do you deal with the with the competition yeah, it's, it's actually it's actually quite the opposite. I, I I would say that if you ask me who our number one competitor is and continues to be, it's it's Microsoft Excel, right? And okay. and it's for the simple yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, okay. like I said, there's a level of of discovery that has to first take place in the market about a certain segment. And I think yes, from a retail standpoint, you know, if if I if I say hey, I want to buy stocks in the public market, there's you know. 25 different apps that I, I could choose from. But if I'm an investor and I want to participate in the private markets, um, obviously I'm not directly using Catapult. I would be using a firm that is in turn using Catapult, which makes our value proposition even stronger because we're sort of the fabric underneath that's holding it all together. Sorry, Brock, you were saying something? No, I was, I was, I was gonna say uh, something very similar. Um, to Karan's point, I mean, I think when we first started out, um, you know, you, you see any other kind of fintech that that pops up in a conversation thinking that's like your number one competitor. Um, quickly, quickly realize, yeah, Microsoft Excel, uh, you know, do nothing is, is another big competitor, right? Where, where firms are not looking at any other solution. They're just not moving forward and digitizing. And, you know, 2020, I mean, has, has changed that very much, right? I don't think firms could have survived if they didn't get pushed now, right? To do things more, uh, uh, you know, more in a digital format. So for us, that's great, right? It, it kind of creates an opportunity for us to, like Karan said earlier, you know, getting in front of these firms and having them know about you is, is kind of the first part of the battle. Um, and it's really educating them about how we can take them off of Microsoft Excel or, you know, very paper-based manual systems and, and move things digitally. So, it, it's been actually a kind of a funny, funny uh, transition as we've, you know, matured a bit as a company where, you know, it's, uh, you know, to kind of the answer to the question there, it's, yeah, it, it's, uh, we're still competing with probably the most basic system that's out there. So think, think, think yeah. of it this way. Think if, if you, if you're a compliance analyst or, you know, uh, someone on the syndication team in the in investment back office in say equity capital markets or, in a wealth team, you've basically used certain, you've done things a certain way for 15, 20, 30 years, and they've all revolved around um, Microsoft Excel or spreadsheets in general, printing papers out and meeting clients over lunch, 
right? That's the process that that they are used to. And in in uh, in in regular course of things, the adoption or the transformation of that would have been a lot slower. One thing that for like with a lot of other fintechs, uh, what happened with COVID and people not being able to meet up for lunch and exchange papers and uh, realizing that they need a different edge in their business to stay ahead of the competition, right? If I can't get on a flight and meet with the client and pitch them on why they should be working with my broker firm, uh, I need an edge in some other way. And so think of the experience you now get if your broker firm is giving you an online experience for your investors to go online and complete an entire process in, in 10 minutes versus having to meet up for lunch and do it, right? And this, these, the circumstances necessitate businesses doing this. So this makes our value proposition a lot stronger. Well, that's, that's fantastic to hear because I, I thought that there is many more firms you are competing with, but it's good to know that you are competing you know, against one of the biggest firm or one of the- um, <laughs> Or competing against do nothing. That's, that actually is good for you because you know, that kind of you know, ticks your ambition as well, right? You want to be one of the, one yeah. of the best of the industry. Um, gentlemen, since you mentioned actually um, 2020, uh, indeed that year has changed a lot and uh, a lot of companies went through testing themselves, right? Some of them unfortunately couldn't be making, um, you know, going further. And um, definitely have, it has been a, a very pivotal year for the development in the technology industry. What do you think? What are your prognoses for 2021 and the years ahead when it comes to the growth of the alternative investment products? So we already know that we are moving in that direction. But what do you think? Bro, in what? In what? Yeah. Like how it can branch out for it to develop? I'm gonna say Brock is definitely the deeper thinker, so I'm gonna let him take this one. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for me, and I, and I think for a lot of investors, the the types of investments that are available in the alternative space are by far the most compelling and in many cases, outperforming investments that are available. Uh, the challenge with that is there has not been the accessibility for investors, right, to participate. So without having a substantial amount of wealth, you could never access the firms, right? There would either be minimums of $500,000, for example, or a million dollars, if you want to participate in the types of funds that alternative investment groups typically deal in or if it was on a per transaction basis, you would need to be part of kind of an exclusive investment pool that maybe a large commercial real estate investment group would tap into every time they do a financing. Um, and that was great for those investors, right? They outperformed the markets, both public, private, they, they did great and, and that's exciting. To take that same level of like institutional quality deals, which are, are very, very commonplace in the alternative kind of investment space in the private markets, bringing that online. So it's in a digital format, right? Where things like this could be fractionalized, broken down into much smaller investors uh, or investment minimums and, and shared across a broader pool of, of, of retail investors. 
is exactly what has been happening in the last few years. And I only see that trend accelerating in 2021, 2022. You know, you see this year, there's a lot of talk about retail participation in public markets, right? Some good, some bad, right? This week it was everybody's, you know, retail's, you know, pumping up, uh, what is it, GameStop, right? And kind of breaking the shorts yeah. from, from some of the yeah. bigger funds in Wall yeah. Street, I'm right? I'm so curious about uh, yeah. Blockbuster right now as well, you know, getting like three or 400% or even more higher. So definitely, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and that's, you know, that's very different from, from our world, but that's, that is retail participation, getting more engaged and, and, and involved in, in the, uh, right in the public markets and the public markets have long been accessible to, to retail investors and investors of all classes, right. It's a much larger market or it had been at least in terms of what was being done digitally. Whereas the private market is massive. It's much, much bigger than the, than the public markets except that it's all, or it has been all offline and inaccessible, right? So it's very fragmented and it's, it's something that is really, you know, very much still to be uncovered by, by investors of all sizes. So, you know, that, that's the way we view it. It's, it's a superior product, right? The, the alternative investment space for investors. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity for outperforming other types of traditional, you know, investments and, it's only just becoming available and accessible for, for a lot of, you know, average individual investors. So, you know, it's exciting times and I think we'll see, uh, you know, a lot of investors do well if they, if they start participating in some of these deals. I just said one more because, you know, it's, it's not really the flavor of the month. It, it was the flavor of the month last month. Uh, so mentioned for blockchain, but in all seriousness, um, when I think of, Building on what Brock said, um, the retail driving um, private capital markets, you know, to be more ex to be more accessible, which I see Catapult helping enable to to a great extent. Um, adding on one piece to that, which is um, actually developing some real use cases where those business flows in private capital markets leverage. Uh, blockchain securities, right? Uh, blockchain technology. So, for example, settlement of securities, as an example. So, it's a large topic, but I just wanted to say that for there's a lot of retail stuff that we talk about with with obviously crypto and certain certain assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and so forth. We've actually explored real world use cases for blockchain and how that could fit into the private capital space. Well, that is absolutely fantastic. This is, um, this is great uh, for many people to hear about because indeed, as you said, um, perhaps uh, Bitcoin has been the flavor of last month, but it's still you know, um, quite, quite strong right now. And I think a lot of people are looking for the alternatives when it comes to um, investment, not just having the investment digitally, but what's available to them as well. So um, if you guys were to give one advice to the FinTech community, what that would be? <laughs> good question. Very good question. I, I would probably say just be persistent. I, I think that's, that's something uh, I was told, you know, number of years ago, stay very focused and be persistent. So, don't try to do everything. Don't try to service everybody. You know, don't try to, 
be the flavor for everybody, right? Pick, pick your focus, become the best at it and don't give up and, and be extremely persistent. And it's not necessarily the recipe for success, but you know, it, it, it increases the likelihood of success drastically. So master, mastering your skills, be the best at what you are the best and just like keep going and developing and, and growing in that direction that it's better to focus on the niche market and just become really a pioneer in it versus being a jack of all trades. Exactly. And, and as an early company, you know, you have to be opportunistic. So you might have to right, keep your eyes open of, of what that path is and but when you know you have that path and, and once you validate that and there's a customer demand and you know the opportunity is there, then yes, then, then focus, don't get distracted and, and be persistent. So having courage, that's, that's one more thing, right? Seeing, yeah. seeing the trends and analyzing everything, but having a personal courage to go after what you are seeing and, and sometimes, yes, going with a gut feeling as well. Exactly. Yeah. Convic yeah. Conviction for what you, for what you think is the, right. The mark, the market opportunity. And, and uh, if, again, if you're a FinTech, right, it's going to be a technology based uh, initiative. And if, if you know, you have something that is, is going to be in demand and, and, you know, you, you know, it's kind of a blue ocean as they say, yeah, go after it. So one more thing, how, how about actually companies keep keeping well with a governance and uh, just because a lot of companies, particularly in the fintech or like generally in the innovative industry, um, a lot of people, yes, are in the sandbox and they testing and often they focusing on the products, but they not really focusing on the on the own company's administrative tasks and, and governance and staying within the regulatory requirement as well. And, and sometimes that might catch them in the future. So what do you think about it? Because you guys actually have done it this very early and you prepared yourself and very quickly listed. So you needed to pay attention to um, just general requirements from, from the industry as well and not trying to break the rules, but rather like seeing what are the rules and trying to fit in. So how about for the companies to stay really focused also um, on fitting in within uh, regulatory environment as well? Uh, yeah, as, a, as a fintech, I mean, that's, that's definitely... Uh a very important aspect to, to your initiative. There are a lot of regulatory rules out there. Um, some can prohibit you from what you think is the opportunity. Um, some can further create the opportunity because they're right for software companies, for FinTech companies, compliance and regulation create cumbersome administrative tasks, you know, cumbersome administrative tasks, uh, create opportunities for software companies. So, yeah, you definitely need to be informed. Uh, make sure that you're, you are within those rules. And if you're not, you, you could have some serious issues. So I think for us, we've navigated that, right? With uh, working with the right types of clients, making sure your, your software licensing agreements, in, you know, ensure that your clients are responsible for, uh, you know, their regulatory requirements and, and things of that nature. But you definitely need to, you know, know the, the lay of the land if, if you're going to be pursuing a fintech opportunity and um, there, there are some cases, right, of groups that have done things out of bounds and, and strong regulators like in the U.S. or in the U.K. or Canada will 
know, we'll definitely uh, learn about what you're doing and, and uh, come after you if you're, if you're doing things outside of the, outside of the rules. So. Super. Thank you so much. Um, guys, it was truly such a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, thank you so much for introducing um, Catapult to NCFA uh, podcast uh, audience. And um, ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap. On behalf of the Fintech Fridays podcast, we would like to thank Brock Murray and Karan Kiani for joining us on the show and you for tuning in. Please feel free to share your thoughts with us and um, we are always welcome your feedback. So once again, I'm inviting you to visit NCFA website to check out some of the fantastic past episodes and uh, we look forward to having you next Friday for another episode of FinTech Fridays. Wish you a great weekend. Thank you very much. And once again, thank you so much to Brock Murray and Karan Kiani for joining us today for today's podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to FinTech Fridays, brought to you by NCFA and Partners. Tune in weekly for the latest FinTech Friday podcast by subscribing to this channel. The National Crowdfunding and FinTech Association of Canada is a nonprofit actively engaged with social and investment FinTech sectors around the globe and provides education, research, industry stewardship, services, and networking opportunities to thousands of members and subscribers. For more information, please visit ncfacanada.org. Oh yeah!